0: Hello and welcome to The Dirt on WNCU-FM 90.7. This is your host, Brian Powell. We are privileged to be joined by Richard Stradling, a 32-year veteran of journalism, currently covering transportation and growth for the News and Observer, where he's been reporting and editing for almost two decades now. Welcome to the program, Richard.
1: Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. We're just
0: jumping right in today. Um, there's a lot to talk about. Transportation and growth is your beat currently. I'm sure that's got to keep you busy uh, in the triangle. Those are <laughs> not small topics.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, I've got a long list of stories I want to get to, and it's it's hard to uh, hard to keep up with everything.
0: First, I want to talk about Cleveland, Ohio. Right. <laughs> um, listeners might be familiar with the infamous Cuyahoga River fire that took place in Cleveland during the 1960s, um, which was it was 1969, 50 years ago. This year, uh, it was an event that many believe helped spark the movement the, that led to the Clean Water Act and, and other milestones of the nation's environmental movement, environmental consciousness You are, in addition to being a a veteran journalist, you are also the co-author of a book titled Where the River Burned, which is a history of the the events around and legacy of this fire. Uh, I think more importantly, it's a a history of an important chapter in Cleveland's evolution as a city, uh, dealing with issues of urban renewal and decay and white flight and gentrification, environmental justice and racism before those were concepts that people were popularly familiar with uh, corruption uh, the impact of the fossil fuel industry conflict between state local federal governments I mean a lot of themes that we still see playing out today are addressed in this book that you co-authored with your brother um, I wonder first I guess it's the 1969 fire that that uh, captures the the public's imagination and that people are most familiar with. I know that as I started reading the book I realized that I didn't know I knew that the river had caught fire and that was about it. It seemed really crazy to me. Man, how polluted does the river have to be for it to catch fire? Uh, in fact, it wasn't the first time that he even had happened. So tell me what you learned about the fire itself and sure. how you got
1: into this. Sure. Um, so I, like a lot of people uh, for a long time, um, thought that the Cuyahoga River Fire of 1969 was a singular event, that it had happened um, once, and that it uh, was such a dramatic thing that it woke the country up, and within a few years, the Clean Water Act was passed by Congress. Um, doing a little research on it, I, I learned um, pretty quickly that this, um, the Cuyahoga River had been burning for 100 years or so, and that um, it turned out that this fire in 1969 was the last fire and so what I was interested in uh, was, was why it was that this fire was had become such a touchstone for people and such an Im- important part of the environmental movement when the previous fires did not and, and were largely forgotten. Um, you know, the, the, the story around the fire was that the river had gotten worse and worse and worse, more polluted until, uh, you know, one morning it suddenly burst into flames. Um, and in fact... It had been burning since at least 1868. That was the earliest fire that, that we were able to, wow. to find, my brother and I. My brother David is a, an urban historian at the University of Cincinnati. Um, and what was interesting about those earlier fires is that they, if you go back and look at the press coverage and look at, at what the local government was doing and how it reacted, those fires um, made news and were important because, they, because of the economic impact that they had. On the city of Cleveland, or on the industry along the river, there was concern about insurance rates, um, concern about uh, bridges being damaged. Um, in 1912, one of the fires resulted in the deaths of four people, um, so it was a safety issue. There was concern that the fires would spread from the river to lumberyards and uh, and the um, refineries along the along the river. So um, it, there wasn't much concern for the river itself as a as a as a piece of the environment, and that's what had changed by 1969. Uh, people uh, began to think about the environment differently, and um, that is why that fire became uh, so important, um, and and why it's why it's remembered while the other ones are forgotten.
0: And you're sure that 1969 was the last time that it was
1: it burned. So we we looked um, to you know there there are there are records. There's a fireboat. Um, on the river, and the fireboat responded to the fire in uh, 1969 and was still operating um, in the mid-90s when I uh, was doing my early research on this. And um, looking through their records, we couldn't find another fire, and nobody else was able to, to point to one. And I certainly after the first one, um, or the, the 1969 fire, got so much news attention, you would think that a follow-up one might.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, the river fire, as it turns out, plays a relatively minor role in, in the book. Um, it's, it's a catalyst of sorts and, and uh, kind of a, a symbol in the way that you describe. But there are a number of other environmental issues that are listed out and another uh, many kind of political issues that are taking place at the same time in Cleveland. Um, just quickly, because the other probably, you know, main character of this story is Carl Stokes. Mm-hmm. Who was he?
1: He was the mayor of Cleveland at the time, uh, elected in 1967. He was the first African-American mayor of a major American city at the time. Cleveland was um, about the eighth largest city in the country. Um, it, it was a majority, still a, a majority white city, and so it was a, a, a pretty uh, major event when he was elected. He was a very charismatic mayor. Um, and he brought a, a new perspective to environmental issues and social issues and economic issues in the city and tried to take a holistic um, look at them and that's why that's that was the the main subject of the book
0: what what was um i guess what was what was his legacy to to the extent that that you can talk about that and and or from your perspective as someone who covers growth and urban development today. I mean, part of what the book discusses is uh, what Carl Stokes was trying to do to renew different parts of downtown Cleveland and his relationship with developers, with the people who were uh, living in those places, with the schemes that didn't quite find success uh, with concerns about white flight and gentrification at different points um, what what parallels uh, or lessons can be taken from his tenure and Cleveland's evolution to the development that we see in North Carolina in Durham and Raleigh in particular
1: well I think <clears throat> I think one of the, the big ones was that um, the c- cities can't be expected to handle these issues. On their own, and um, you know the 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 Cuyahoga River uh, fire was in the city of Cleveland, but the the pollution that was in that river um, didn't just come from the, the city of Cleveland. And, and one of the things he was arguing for was that it, it's going to take uh, state and federal um, cooperation and and regional cooperation. You know, um, Cleveland. Unlike, unlike the cities in North Carolina, I mean, Cleveland is a, is a large city in a county that has like 57 uh, cities and, and towns and townships, all these little municipal governments um, uh, crammed into one county. And, you know, up to that point, there was a, you know, there was an argument that um, Cleveland's problems are Cleveland's problems. And, you know, we'll, we'll go home to, to the suburbs and, and uh, you know, leave us alone. We're a separate entity. And, and he argued that, you know, this this is some, something we need to address uh, as a region. And um, and I think that's, you know, regionalism is something that um, has has taken hold, and, and you see that here in the triangle trying to, tr- to deal with issues of transportation. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously the school system here is, are, are regional in nature. They're countywide, not, you know, Raleigh doesn't have its own. We took care of that 30, 40 years ago. But... Um, so I think that's one of the big legacies. He uh, clearly had a um, uh, was not able not able to succeed in the way that he wanted to, um, and that, that was one of the other things that we looked at. And I mean, there were there were certain there were there were factors in, um, in the deindustrialization of Cleveland that um, were or just just sort of overwhelmed the, the efforts that that he was making to try and uh, to keep that city. Um, afloat. And so it, w- it would go through, you know, decades more of decline. It's, it's starting to turn around, um, uh, although people say that all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, there's signs of hope and, and, um, and the, the, uh, there are some uh, tailwinds for cities in general. I think more, there's more interest in living in urban areas and, and um, uh, people are coming back to cities. And that's happening all over. But um, clearly, places like Cleveland and Detroit and Youngstown and Akron have have challenges that uh, cities like Raleigh don't. It's an interesting, I mean, you,
0: to be a public official in, in that particular time in a city in the kind of transition that Cleveland, we'll call it a transition, uh, that Cleveland was in. I mean, it's kind of a a, a lose lose situation. No matter what you do, uh, it's just going to be it's going to be tough to come out of that with a, um, you know, with a fantastic legacy. There were some stories in here, and, be, and people should absolutely pick up this book and read it because some of the things that were addressed or attempted are uh, strange by contemporary standards. There was the poolside in the lake uh, situation in in which they uh, basically attempted to. Cordon off a portion of Lake Erie to right. make it clean. Yeah,
1: so the city uh, city had a couple of parks that had beaches on the lake, and the lake was filthy, and so and and filthy not obviously not just because of what was going on in Cleveland, but but all over. This is Lake Erie now, and um, and so the city made an attempt to uh, put up n- uh, you know plastic sheeting and and uh, make a pool sort of uh, in the lake and, and you know, doused it with chlorine to, to, to make it something that you could swim in. Wow. And, uh, you know, the mayor the mayor and his um, public uh, utilities director w- were down there for the first day of this, and they waded in. Uh, I think we have a photo of that in the book. Um, they were very proud of this, and, then, you know, then a storm came along not too much after that and, and ripped it apart. Um, but it was, an, uh, you know, it, it sounds kind of pathetic now, but it was clearly an effort to try and respond to uh, what they had been dealt with, and or what they'd been dealt, and that was a um, you know a horribly polluted lake.
0: Trying bold ideas or new outside the box thinking, right. and yet also with the resources that you have at hand, it's yep. a, a difficult position to be in.
1: And, and one more thing, I mean, he he was doing this um, for the kids of Cleveland who couldn't afford swimming pools. I mean that you know this is. Um, this was the mayor thinking um, about, um, you know, the, the, the people who didn't have um, everything. And, you know, he grew up in uh, public housing himself, and so he understood, um, he understood what it was like to, to go without. And so he, you know, a lot of, lot of the work that he did, um, you know, was, was to try and uh, raise up the, um, the economy of the city and, and the people of it.
0: And I should just note that Lake Erie uh, and the Cuyahoga River suffered blue-green algal blooms, um, different kinds of kind of oil and industrial waste contamination. The skies around Cleveland contaminated with uh, pollution from local coal plants. Um, For people following the news in Ohio, uh, they just recently, yesterday, uh, signed a law into place that will uh, keep a lot of coal plants burning in that state uh, at the expense of some renewable energy uh, standards. And I guess I wanna turn now to the Cleveland Plain Dealer. How how important was the Plain Dealer to your ability to piece together this history? Because the Plain Dealer, McClatchy, so many other print news publications in this country, people are well aware of this at this point, of downsized, reduced delivery days, reduced staff. The Vindicator in nearby Youngstown mm-hmm. um, has just gone under an historic paper. Um, you know what? Based on your experience, both in journalism and, and researching this book, what what are we what are we losing with the decline of of these historic news institutions?
1: Well, so it wasn't just the Plain Dealer; there was a second uh, newspaper, the Cleveland Press. Um, and in fact, right. the the um, Betty Cleric, the uh, reporter, the environmental reporter for the Cleveland Press, was uh, very active in in this space, um, writing about the environment. Um, they were. Tremendously important. I mean, uh, the the clip files for both those papers are available at Cleveland State and um, Cleveland State University, and the um, uh, uh, you know so and and they were covering these things day to day, and um, you know it's it, it it's it's hard to overstate the importance of having somebody paying attention to issues like this on a regular basis. Um, people like Betty who. Um, are on a beat in which they can develop um, some expertise and sources and that takes um, that takes time and it takes years and um, you lose that when um, you know when y- you have new staffs that shrink to the point where people are not able to pay attention to uh, to individual issues and to um, develop that expertise and that sourcing
0: I guess I will um, I'll wrap up this portion of our conversation uh have you tried burning river pale ale
1: of course <laughs> <laughs> yes um many times and uh one thing we were interested in was the packaging uh that uh, they've they've recently changed uh, um, the packaging to um it, it still shows a kind of uh um, stylized flames in the foreground with this uh, city of cleveland's uh um skyline in the back but uh Anyway, yeah, and and the owner of that um, the Great Lakes Brewing Company, which is in Ohio City on a on a bluff um, on the on the west side of the Cuyahoga River from downtown Cleveland, um, is a, an environmentalist and very interested in uh, in causes uh, around the environment and. Uh, lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River, and uh, he sponsors uh, the the brewery sponsors a, uh, a Burning River Festival every year um, down on the down on the river, which is much cleaner than it used to be.
0: Do you know whether they get their water from the Cuyahoga? I'm
1: sure they get it from Lake Erie. Um, if you uh, if you go to Cleveland and you look out in the lake, you'll see this uh, sort of disc out. Out about a mile and mile and a half out into the water. That's the intake for the city of city's water. Um, it, it it has moved further out as the years went by um, to get away from the Cuyahoga and, and away from the the city waterfront to get to the cleaner water out there. Um, Cleveland has has plenty of water.
0: It's it's interesting because in North Carolina the local brewers are. Have been historically champions of uh, efforts to clean up water and protect water in the state of North Carolina, and so they are people that are, you know, the environmental community often looks to for for support um, in fundraising or in you know um, influence and lobbying and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh that's a fascinating parallel as well. Okay, we are out of time for this segment. We're going to come back and talk about transportation and growth in North Carolina, what is happening in Raleigh, and the General Assembly. We're maybe nearing the end of the 2019 legislative session. That's unclear at this point, but we'll talk with Richard about what has been happening on the transportation front since they began this new session back in January. You are listening to WNCU-FM 90.7. This is The Dirt with your host, Brian Powell. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. This is your host, Brian Powell. We are joined by Richard Stradling, a reporter at the News and Observer who covers growth and transportation. Thank you for sticking with us, Richard. Appreciate right, sure. it. Sure. So there's a lot to talk about. The North Carolina General Assembly has been in session since January, February, and they, I think, a lot of us expected that to wrap up at the end of June, and it has continued on. And there, there really is no sign of actually closing up shop at this point. Uh, they will probably leave and just run skeleton sessions for a while, and then come back. But I want to talk a little bit about what has been done, what was begun to be done, and then and then dropped or defeated for whatever reason, uh, and then. Uh, And some other things. But first, I want to I want to talk about your recent story about the Department of Transportation and the new NC First Commission that they have formed to address how we're going to fund roadways in North Carolina in the future. And I'm going to I want to ask you the question that you posit at the beginning of that piece. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the North Carolina Department of Transportation's annual five billion dollar budget comes from people who use the state's roads through taxes on gasoline and the sale and registration of cars and trucks. But what if many people, perhaps a majority, don't pay those taxes, you write, because they drive electric vehicles, that don't use gasoline, or because they use ride-sharing services such as Uber and Lyft and don't own a car? How is the Department of Transportation preparing for this?
1: Well, that's that's the challenge. So they uh, they've created this commission, um, and they will that commission will work through uh, next summer, and develop some recommendations. Some of them will probably be short-term recommendations, and others may be um, maybe long-term things that to look at um, over the coming decade or so. Um, this is something that uh, governments, local go- state governments, rather across the country, are, have been wrestling with, and North Carolina. Uh, took it on um, back in 2007 or 2008 with a, a, a previous committee, that committee was formed because um, the DOT and and others looked at the improvement in uh, uh, gas mileage and uh, fuel efficiency and saw that, um, you know, with the government mandates and also just, uh, just improvements in technology that uh, uh, cars were driving uh, as much or more, and using less gas, and so th- there was a concern there. Um, secretary Jim Trogdon, the DOT secretary who created this commission, says, um, you know, now that he looks out, that's the least of his concerns. Um, improvements in gas mileage. He's he's worried about the, uh, uh, the the switching over of the fleet to electric vehicles, and there's uh, you know, there's lots of different um, feelings on how long that's going to take. Um, there's still. Electric vehicles are still more expensive, but the, the, um, the thinking is that um, improvements in that technology, the battery storage, um, improvements in the infrastructure to, to, um, to recharge the cars is going, to, is going to make them more attractive and that that's going to become the way of the future. And DOT's going to have to try and figure out, um, you know, how to, how to uh, raise money for the roads that those electric vehicles are driving on. You know the things that they've they've talked about um, just as as possibilities, but that without any kind of details. Are you know things like um, additional taxes on electricity? You pay a sales tax on electricity now, um, but that money is not uh, devoted or sent to the DOT. Um, you know perhaps there's a way to um, uh, have a separate a separate part of that tax, or a different, uh, or an additional tax that, that could could be uh, used for roads. Um, one of the things that they they will probably look at is is taxes on ride sharing, um, you know Uber, Lyft, and others. Um, you know that's something that might be done in more in the in the short term.
0: How do driverless vehicles play into these scenarios?
1: Yeah, so. Um, you know, uh, I, you know, maybe a year ago, people were talking about how there were going to be driverless, uh, fleets of driverless vehicles in, on the roads in some cities in in uh, two or three years. And now it's looking like that it's going to take longer, um, that there are some uh, technological challenges there. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the scenarios that people talk about in the future is that people will not own a car, but will simply, um, you know, dial up and... and uh, summon a uh, driverless electric vehicle that will come to their house or work and, and take them where they want to go, and drop them off, and then drive off and pick up somebody else. Um, I think we're a ways away from that, but that's uh, you know that's one possibility that factors into this. Uh, well, how do you how do you raise the money to to build the roads that those vehicles are driving on?
0: You know, one thing that occurred to me reading your uh, reading your story was that. There were, there were some sources who were discussing all of these different kinds of uh, fantastic scenarios for what commuting might look like in the future. I didn't hear any discussion about whether or not people will commute in the future because right. different uh, types of growth and development and housing density advancements and, and things like that, remote work technology. Is there a chance that people will just be staying at home and home is, you know, where they do all of their things?
1: Yeah. Um, people have been talking about that for a while, but um, and obviously, you could do that today. I mean, I work at home, uh, you know, one day a week if I can. And and um, uh, but I, it doesn't seem to be going that way. We we also have you know the um, the uh, advance of things like WeWork and and other uh, work sharing places where people still want to go somewhere to do to do work, um, and they still want to be with other people who are doing their work. And there, there's you know. Uh, those those video chats and conference calls get kind of um, tiring after a while, and uh, you know I I think that we still want to um, to go to work, and you know one thing we um, I don't think we talk enough about is um, staggering when we go to work. Um, you know when I was an editor at the paper, um, I I. Didn't need to be at work when everybody else did. I'd get to work at 9:30 or 10 o'clock, and then I'd stay till 7, 8, or 9 o'clock in the evening. And I never had any trouble with traffic. Um, you know, uh, it, and uh, I think, and that's something that pe- if 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 employers are more flexible on when people need to be at work, there may be this sort of hybrid uh, work environment where you are able to do um, some work in the morning or in the in the evening at home, and and um, just stagger your commute and we might get more out of the roads that we have.
0: So the NC First Commission that you mentioned has some pretty uh, pretty big names on it. Uh, Raleigh Mayor Nancy McFarlane is on it. Um, the Duke uh, President, Duke Energy, Stephen DeMay uh, for North Carolina is on it. Uh, Janet Cowell, uh, the uh, I believe the CEO or, or an executive from Martin Marietta, which mm-hmm. is a, a major company in the area, And uh, a lot of other pretty big names for North Carolina and the triangle are on this um, on this commission. I'm just wondering if you got any sense of what is attracting these. Because when I think of boards and commissions, especially at the Department of Transportation, you know, I'm not thinking about this as a glamorous, you know, power position or, or anything like that or anything that comes with. Particular perks. What's drawing people to this? How was this chosen?
1: I can only think that that um, is is largely a result of the influence of Jim Trogdon in in creating this commission. I mean, nobody um, nobody directed him to create this. This is not a a mandate. Um, This is something that he and and this is fairly consistent, I think, with his outlook is to is to look to the future. He also um, established this uh, annual transportation summit. Um, which, uh, you know, in which the the DOT and other people involved in transportation kind of look out and see where where changes in technology and demographics and, and uh, you know, people's uh, uh, habits are going to change the way transportation works in the future. Um, I think he very much wants to be out ahead of this stuff or at least uh, be prepared when, when some of these changes happen. Um, but I can only think that, uh, you know, as it it's because of his his um, persuasiveness that he was able to get such a good group together.
0: I want to segue into what's happening at the General Assembly, and one thing that was uh, attempted was a piece of legislation that would have raised a registration fee for electric vehicles. Right. Proponents claimed that it would address the problem that uh, the NC First Commission is looking at. Critics said that the fees were unfair. What? Where does that?
1: So th- yeah, so that uh, that did not make it. Um, so it was a it was a, a proposal that um, arose in the Senate. The the uh, the chairman of the um, Senate Transportation Committee and the Senate um, Transportation Appropriations Committee, the same two gentlemen, uh, Jim Davis and uh, McInnes, um, they introduced this bill. And there was not a companion bill in the House. And initially they had sought to increase the annual fee. There's an annual fee now that uh, the owners of electric vehicles pay. It's a registration fee of $130. They sought to increase that to $275 over a period of years. It would phase in. A later version of their bill, um, it was amended to just go to $230, but starting in, in 2020. and. They spoke of this as a, an issue of fairness. They they didn't uh, they don't see that the the electric vehicle owners are paying their fair share uh, toward the maintenance and building of the roads that they use. Um, the, uh, the the legislature commissioned a study that was done um, to look at at this, and um, that study concluded that the average um, that a an electric vehicle owner stood to save um, from not paying the gas tax every year was was more like a hundred dollars and so the the uh, owners and and, um, people who are defending the electric vehicles um, said you know actually the fee then that we have now is probably too high Um, 130 is higher than 100 Um, so there there was some controversy about this and it's also comes at a time when the state the Governor Cooper uh, um, is, is trying to encourage more use of electric vehicles as part of his climate change um, initiative. Uh, DOT is looking at how they can um, uh, have more uh, charging stations along the state's highways. And so I think people, some people saw this as being uh, uh, counterproductive to um, do something that would discourage people from uh, from buying an electric vehicle. And also there was other questions of of fairness. This was a, um, you know, if you drive a car, if you drive your car a lot, then you pay more in the gas tax every time you uh, fuel up. Um, this fee would have been a flat fee that every electric vehicle owner would would pay and does pay, and regardless of how much they actually drive on the road. So, so it
0: it has no traction now. Could it come back?
1: It could come back. The they uh, the the senators, the sponsors, say they will try again. Um, it, it it was a separate bill, and at some point. It was folded into the budget, the Senate's version of the budget, and the Senate um, approved it. And then, when the House and the Senate sat down to work out um, a compromise budget, it it disappeared. And um, but but they've indicated and said that they will try again.
0: So there's another piece of legislation that you have written about this week related to billboards along the roadways in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. What's that all about?
1: Well, so there's uh, f- there seems to be a billboard bill just about every session, um, you know, uh, tweaking the laws to uh, to try and uh, I- improve the the uh, standing of the industry, which um, which if you talk to them is is shrinking, um, you know that they they. Uh, uh, they, they have about 7,500 billboards across the state now. They say that they've lost about 1,000 in the last decade um, as as old billboards um, either deteriorate or the landowners decide they no longer want a billboard or the land is, is developed, and um, they feel hamstrung in being able to move those bill, billboards. And that's what this bill um, aimed to address, was to essentially make it a right for the the, uh, the companies, the owners of the of the billboards, to be able to move them to another location. And there were two different scenarios in the bill. And it's it's a, actually a very complicated bill to read. It's seven pages long, even though it, it sort of aims to do something that seems fairly simple. Um, if a billboard was taken because of eminent domain, if a government was taking it, a DOT was widening a road and needed to take the spot where a billboard was, the, uh, the bill will allow that owner of that billboard to find another owner, another landowner, somewhere within two miles and have it put up on that property um, without getting any kind of permit from the local government. So um, if, if the local government, uh, you know, had a policy against establishing a new billboard somewhere, um, this would supersede that. It would also allow uh, for the trimming of trees at that new location and also allow it to be 50 feet above either grade or, or the, um, yeah, the grade, so that it could be seen. The second scenario is the one that I think concerns um, critics of this even more, is that it would allow um, any billboard to be moved either on the property that it's on now or within 250 feet of that property. Um, W- once every 10 years, um, regardless of whether uh, local government is, is trying to take the property or not. And th- the concern here is that this would allow um, uh, billboards to be, um, you know, modernized and perhaps converted to digital billboards, um, uh, again, without any say from the local government, uh, regardless of whatever the local ordinances are about, about billboards, as a way to establish a new billboard. Um, though it's not an additional billboard. Would, the, the old one would come down and the new one would go up.
0: And they can cut a lot of trees down along the way as well, is that right?
1: Yeah, so it, 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 there, there are provisions in there that, that would allow, uh, again, the, the trimming of trees both on the private property but also on, in the public right-of-way so that the, um, the billboard is visible from the road.
0: What is it that I hear about a Hyperloop in Raleigh?
1: So this came up, I mentioned the transportation summit that uh, Secretary Trogden held uh, this past winter. One of the speakers who came uh, was a representative of, of Virgin One Hyperloop. And uh, it was just one of the breakout sessions and I attended that one and, and uh, wrote about it. A Hyperloop is a new kind of technology that would allow people and cargo to move in pods, Inside a loop, or inside a um, inside a, a um, uh, like a tunnel, like a tunnel. Yeah, it's a, it's a tube. Um, the tube could be above ground or it could be underground. It, um, the the picture, the one that the prototype they've built in the desert um, is above ground. They take uh, most of the air out of it, so it's sort of like a vacuum. There's there's not a lot of uh, resistance there, and then the the pods are actually levitated. With um, magnetic you know electric magnetic um, technology of some sort, and then um, then moved along a track and the um, the theory is that they can get up to six hundred more than six hundred miles per hour and the the headline you know of the story in uh, January was that you and, and the number that they used was you could go from Raleigh to Charlotte in twenty two minutes um,
0: they know they know we can't even get a light rail built between Durham and Chapel Hill, right?
1: That's right. So this, the, and the, you know, everybody acknowledges that this is—it sounds like science fiction—but there are um, there are places around the world where they're looking at this. They have built this prototype. Um, it didn't get to 660 because it's not long enough. Um, you know, you have to get up to a certain speed and then you have to slow down again. And they only built it about a mile long. So, right. um, so they got to 200 and some miles per hour and then they they sort of projected out from there about how fast they could get it to go.
0: Well, the future is looking very interesting (laughs) one way or another, that's for sure. All right, we've got to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us. I've enjoyed talking to you. You have been listening to Richard Stradling of the News and Observer. This is The Dirt with Brian Powell on WNCU 90.7 FM. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. We're online as well. Check out the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Please leave us a review while you are there. Uh, The technically part time North Carolina General Assembly has been holding their 2019 legislative session since January. To break down what has happened so far this legislative session from an environmental perspective, we have the policy team from the North Carolina Conservation Network here to discuss. So I'd like to welcome Grady McCauley, Jamie Cole, and Will Scott all to the studio today. Thank you for joining, y'all. Thanks
2: for having us. Thank you,
0: Grady. Let's start first with the budget. Uh, just explain to listeners who haven't been paying attention what the current status. First, the status of the legislative session in general. I mean, we thought this thing was going to wrap up before July came, and here we are at the end of the month, and it still seems to be stretching on, and then also what what the status of the the budget
2: is. That's right, so uh, the legislative session, as you said, began in January, and one of the key points of the legislative session is to adopt the budget, um, since this is an odd year, it's to adopt the budget that will apply in fiscal year 2019 through 2020, which is July 1 through June 30th, and then also apply in fiscal year 2020 through 2021 again from July 1st to June 30th. The legislature usually tries to get the budget done by June 30th so that there's a budget in place for the coming fiscal year when we enter it. Um, this year the legislature put together its budget bill. The The governor, Governor Cooper, um, had put out his request for a budget um, back early in the spring and um, the legislature largely ignored that, and Governor Cooper had said that he really wanted to see pay raises for teachers and for state employees, and he wanted to see an expansion of health care. All those are not environmental issues, but they were key issues for for Governor Cooper. State legislative leaders didn't put what he had requested in the budget, um, and he had essentially signaled that he would veto it if those weren't in, and they weren't. So he vetoed the budget. <coughs> and then. Um, since then, there may have been some conversations going on between the, the governor and legislative leadership. It's not clear that those conversations are still happening. And um, it appears that Republican legislative leaders have been trying to find Democrats that they could persuade to vote to override the governor's budget veto, but they haven't been successful yet.
0: So what, what are the implications of that if, if they can't override the veto, if the legislature doesn't come back with an alternative budget? that is satisfactory to the governor, what does that mean for, you know, the average listener in North Carolina?
2: Right, so listeners will probably recall that if the if the US Congress doesn't reach an agreement on the budget by the end of the, of the federal fiscal year, the federal government shuts down. Um, and that happened uh, a couple years ago. That doesn't happen in North Carolina because of a provision that was adopted by the legislature um, a couple years ago that says if we don't have a state budget at the end of the fiscal year, we drop back to whatever the recurring budget was from the previous fiscal year. It's helpful to understand in this that the budget is like, state budget is like an ocean. That there's this massive amount of money moving every year underneath. And the budget bill doesn't look at it all. The budget bill is like the surface of the waves on the surface of the ocean. Some bump up, some bump down. But if if a line item in the budget isn't changing, it doesn't get any special attention. and so. The largest part of the $22 billion, $23 billion appropriated budget um, doesn't change much from year to year. Now, what it means to drop back to the previous budget, it does need to change for a lot of state services to keep up with the growth in the state's population. So spending on health and spending on education um, is increased year to year to keep up with state population growth when we don't have a new budget and we drop back to the previous year's budget we're not keeping up with that growth so the effective amount of money available for the the same level of service our citizens expect isn't there from an environmental perspective uh, a lot of those a lot of the environmental spending doesn't track population growth exactly but there are items that get added um, there's money for, for example, conservation of natural resources that's in the budget every year but there's also amounts that get added year by year and what it means to not have a budget and drop back to the recurring budget is that the proposed additional spending for parks or for land conservation, um, water conservation, doesn't happen. That extra margin doesn't happen. in the year. So uh, one of the
0: um, you know I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about things that may never come to pass because of this impasse on the budget. But uh, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the, the provisions that have made it into what the legislature sent to the governor's desk. Okay. Um, and a, a portion of that involves directed grants, earmarks, uh, money put in place for local parks and local water infrastructure projects, Tell me, WBTV just did a report down in Charlotte that recently cited some numbers that North Carolina Conservation Network has put together about some of these earmarks and direct grants. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what it is that you found, especially because if if I understand correctly, the governor came back uh, with a kind of compromise language, publicly speaking, and Some of the things that he signaled publicly that he would be willing to compromise on are the line item spending um, in in the budget, whether he's considered this specific thing or not. Who knows? But it may be something that if a negotiation ever does land us a budget, these things might be in
2: there. So I'm interested in what you found. Yeah, so, so before I dive into some of the earmarks, uh, I want to take a step back and say this budget includes some things that from an environmental perspective are good and other things that from an environmental perspective are bad. One of the things that's in the budget, for example, that is good is um, we have roughly 70 water systems or utilities around the state that uh, the money that they bring in from their customers doesn't actually cover the cost to provide the service plus the debt and their long-term obligations. So they're they're not fiscally viable utility systems. This budget actually has $9 million that was added late in the process that would go towards a competitive grant process to help some of those systems, let the State Division of Water Infrastructure help some of those systems resolve their problems. That would be good whether it's done in this budget or whether it's done through a compromise or whether it's done through some other piece of legislation. The budget also has some things that are not positive in it and that's where we get to the directed grants and earmarks. So you mentioned parks, money for local governments um, to spend on developing parks and maintaining them, and money for local governments to spend on water and sewer infrastructure. We have long-lasting programs in both of those areas where Year to year, the state government has, a, the, the state legislature has appropriated funds, and then governments that need funds for their projects can come in and compete for them against an objective set of standards. And that's important because it means that the money that we have, there's always more demand for projects than there is money, but it means that when we spend money as a state, we're giving it to local governments that are buying the best projects, the most needful projects, or, or the ones with the highest return and benefits to, to North Carolina residents. What this budget has, and all budgets have it to some extent, but this is really to an extreme. This budget sends a lot of money, not just in the areas of parks and water and sewer infrastructure, but in a bunch of other areas of the budget that we don't track, because they're not our expertise. Um, it sends it to specific projects, so it doesn't give it to the agency to do a competitive grant. It just gives it directly to a local government to do a particular project. And one, the initial problem with that is that you don't know when a budget is doing that. You don't know whether that's a particularly good project. It may be a fine project, it may be a terrible project. It isn't ever ranked against any set of, of objective criteria. A second problem with that is when the state agencies use the competitive grant programs to give out the money, they have a set of contracts that they sign with the local governments and there's accountability and they have procedures for seeing where the money goes. When I've talked to state staff about these earmarks the provisions in the budget that say you'll give $50,000 to this local government or $200,000 to that local government Um, It's not clear how that money gets to the local governments and whether Anyone at the state is in a position to really see that it's spent properly So we don't just right at the outset. That's not good government We don't want to see the money spent that way did did the legislature try to themselves dole out money to
0: the projects that were in most need um, when it was? Well,
2: what they, what they seem to have done is given it to specific districts. And so we looked to see where the money's going and found that about 90% of it um, is going to districts that are represented by Republicans. And it's not all Republicans. It's more Republicans with a connection to leadership. So they're able to get that money given to their pet projects. Um, again, some of those projects may be fine, some of them may be terrible, we don't know, but the the lopsided distribution is a strong sign that this is not the best projects, this is projects chosen a different way. Okay, well, uh, I guess it remains to be seen whether these
0: things ever wind up seeing the light of day, um, but we'll be keeping an eye on that. I want to turn now to another piece of legislation that has been uh, the source of considerable drama in the state house and is still swirling around that is the north carolina 2019 farm act Uh, people will remember the 2018 north carolina farm act was not short on drama either Uh, it contained provisions that changed what we can or cannot call milk and uh, also uh, pulled back the ability of neighbors of industrial animal operations from being able to uh, bring lawsuits when those operations are interfering with their property rights and creating nuisances uh, that interfere with their enjoyment of their homes. This iteration of the Farm Act uh, also has some industrial agriculture related provisions and some other provisions that are getting a lot more attention. Jamie, what are what, what's the North Carolina Farm Act 2019 all about?
3: Yeah, thank you, Brian. So the Farm Act of 2019 is, uh, in many accounts, a continuation of just what you've uh, articulated uh, from the past, uh, we're seeing that there are provisions buried in the end at the end of the bill that would uh, set communities around uh, confined animal feeding operations back quite a bit um, and take back a lot of the access that uh, communities and North Carolinians as a whole have to uh, records. Uh, so there's a section uh, 25 that's in this bill um, that would exempt certain soil and water conservation commission documents uh, from the public being having access to them. Uh, these particular records have actually been really helpful in the past uh, via for uh, legal actions that uh, community members have sought to uh, gain relief from the impacts that they've experienced from their neighboring uh, hog operations. So uh, that'd be
0: something like. Um, a producer, how they manage the gigantic cesspools of waste on their land, right? The- exactly,
3: okay. and and the problem with this, there's a couple problems, of course, but uh, this confidentiality uh, that that the I guess the industry or the 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 uh, legislators who are putting this forth are seeking uh, is really a, in contrast to the transparency that we've we've seen a lot of folks in uh, this administration uh, aiming toward. And so it's especially concerning when we consider um, access to public records, but just an overall uh, need for transparency when it comes to what's happening uh, on these farms, in these communities, uh, considering the the legal actions that have uh, taken place and have actually come out in favor of communities in the past few years.
0: In Section Twenty
3: Seven. Yeah. So Section Twenty Seven is also pretty bad. It's 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 really bad when you consider uh, the potential for the the uh, the provision in here in the future. So we're looking at this section having, um, allowing modifications to these same hog operations without any other oversight um, that would come along with an individual permit. So right now we're uh, in the state, most of the hog operations that we have across the state are under the same general permit. And so that general permit has certain uh, protections and uh, uh, procedures and and filings and and oversight that uh, cover all the hog operations in the state. Um, What we're looking at with this section is an allowance of uh, modifications, construction, or expansion of hog waste systems without any additional oversight outside of that general permit um, that covers in a very general way uh, most of the hog operations. Um, and that's pretty much in the face uh, and contrary to a lot of the the steps that the legislature took in the past uh, when they put in place a moratorium on, on the construction of new hog operations. And I can go into that history, but we're looking at uh, a concerted effort to roll back the protections that have been put in place by the legislature in the past.
0: If people want to learn more they can Google it. There have been all kinds of news reports written about the hemp provisions in the Farm Act. Unfortunately, not as many about industrial agriculture and what it would do to that. I will turn now to Will Scott, who is here in the studio to talk about the last big uh, issue that's kind of pending before the legislature, which is a, a, uh, an energy bill. It's called Senate Bill 559. And it is a uh, big Duke Energy boosted bill. So let's talk about that. Uh, Duke Energy is kind of a recurring character all its own on this program. And I think they've been a a huge booster of this. It would change how your electric bill is calculated and raised in some pretty drastic ways. Tell me a little bit about what the, the latest version of this bill would do.
4: So, so essentially this bill has two parts. The, the first is about what's called storm securitization, which essentially would let um, Duke take out bonds. that would be cheaper than borrowing money on private markets to pay for unexpected costs caused by hurricanes last year. Um, that, that part is not particularly controversial. I think there's, there's some broad support for it. Um, but the, the, the savings to people in North Carolina would be relatively small from that, probably a few tens of millions of dollars a year. Uh, it's the second part of the bill that's really proven much more controversial, um, which is uh, it would change the way that rate making was done in North Carolina. Right now, if the utility wants to charge customers for expenses that it incurs and earn a profit on them, uh, adding them to what's called the rate base the Utilities Commission, it has to uh, do that and then come back at the end of the year and say, here's what we spent money on. We think it was reasonable and prudent. Here's why everyone should pay for it. Uh, this would change it so that uh, rates could be locked in for uh, initially five years, but now three years in advance, uh, so that the utility would be guaranteed a profit uh, on a given set of investments, and there wouldn't be the same chance for uh, other third parties to come in, sort of kick the tires on whether ratepayers should pay for those.
0: Which is interesting because, from a timing perspective, we are really getting to the point now where Governor Cooper, a Democrat, uh, will have his appointees. Um, with a deciding majority on the North Carolina Utilities Commission, so it seems advantageous to Duke, assuming that those people are maybe more oppositional to, to Duke, although I'm not sure that's a given, but assuming that's the case, this, this helps them out from that perspective because they get to kind of bypass this new commission in, in some sense, well, not entirely.
4: You know, I think the important background here is that last year, the U- Duke put forward what was, they call the grid modernization proposal, $13 billion multi-year investment, and the Utilities Commission rejected that. Um, this bill is essentially Duke's attempt to go to the legislature and make it so that the grounds for the Utilities Commission's objections to that plan would be removed and they would be able to put in place this massive package um, that would then, of course, increase the amount they charge to the customers and in- increase their profits. As, as a company, I can absolutely see why you know, you'd know you want to have that certainty that you know how much money you're going to be making two or three years down the road. But what's, what's not clear from this bill, and I think the reason you've seen opposition you know, from industrial groups, from groups representing people from low and fixed income communities, and, and from the environmental side of the spectrum, has been that it's just not clear what the public benefit is in exchange for giving duke this sort of guaranteed profit locked in in the future.
0: You are listening to an update on the North Carolina General Assembly's 2019 legislative session from the policy staff at the North Carolina Conservation Network. This is The Dirt with Brian Powell on WNCU 90.7 FM.